Hey, welcome to the Trapital Podcast. I'm your host and the founder of Trapital, Dan Runcie. Today's podcast, we're switching things up. I'm going to do a live audio version, a live reading of the most recent essay that I wrote on the Outcast Edge. This essay's gotten a really strong response, and thank you for everyone that's been sharing it, talking about it. What we're going to do today is I'm going to read the essay for the first part of this podcast. Then the second part of this podcast, I'm going to read some suggestions from listeners and readers who read the essay and then followed up with their thoughts on who they think should be added to the list of the Outcast Edge. This is going to be a good one because some of the people are perfect names and perfect fits. Some of them aren't, but I think that's the beauty of the Outcast Edge itself that allows us to have those conversations. Let's go ahead and get started with the audio version of the essay. The Outcast Edge, how slept-on trends build a following, slowly rise to the top, and maintain their unique edge. Hip-hop's late 80s and early 90s golden age was dominated by East Coast hip-hop and West Coast G-Funk. At the time, people looked down on Southern hip-hop for its booty-shaking music that struggled to be taken seriously. Out of this landscape rose two teenagers known as outcasts from Atlanta, Andre 3000 Benjamin and Antoine Big Boy Patton. They were making music on their own terms, even with the odds stacked against them. The eclectic duo started with the right cosigns. Outkast was the first rap group signed to LaFace Records. Their debut music video, Players Ball, was directed by Puff Daddy. And still, Outkast debuted Southern playlisted Cadillac funky music only at number 20 on the Billboard 200. Hip-hop wasn't ready for their mix of soul, dub, psych rock, gospel-infused music into its Southern rap. But things changed after the 1995 Source Awards. Outkast was named Best New Artist in front of an audience of haters. The crowd booed Andre as he accepted the award and said now famously, quote, the South got something to say, end quote. That statement was prophetic. Andre's words spoke directly to Southern hip-hop fans that had finally had hometown heroes to root for. Each subsequent album reached an even bigger audience. AT Aliens in 1996 led to Equemini in 1998, which paved the way for Stankonia in 2000. There were bigger hip-hop acts at the time, but few had a loyal following like OutKast. Then in 2003, they went mainstream. OutKast's number one hit, Hey Ya, landed on wedding playlists everywhere. Speakerbox Love Below in 2004 was the last rap album to win Album of the Year at the Grammys. It took 10 long years, but the Atlanta duo had reached the industry's peak. Outkast's triumph was a catalyst for Atlanta's lasting dominance in hip-hop. The group's journey is the namesake for a theory I'm calling the Outkast Edge. It's when an outsider takes longer to succeed, but slowly rises to the top by growing a loyal following and a like-minded audience. Outcast was forced to use grassroots tactics and unique growth tactics, which only added to their longevity. These solid stables of fans give those with the Outcast Edge leverage to call their shots and stay true to their core mission. This theory is valuable for artists, entertainers, content creators, startup founders, and more. Today's available technology has opened the doors for outcasts in all walks of life to reach their audience. It's still hard as hell, but it's possible. 
The Outcast Edge is a framework for how slept on trends become popular, sustain their unique edge, and stay there after they succeed. The Outcast Edge 101. Three key parts here. First, create content for like-minded outsiders. In the beginning, Outcast didn't shy away from making music that was hyper-specific to them. Their narratives didn't exist in mainstream media. They had to create their own paths so people like them could be seen. Their music hits different. For the Outcast Edge, the creator's connection to the material must be personal. It invites like-minded fans into a world that builds an even deeper connection. Second, build an audience on independent platforms. Independently released content today is the most common way for true outcasts to grow a community. These types of creators learn where their fans consume content and adapt accordingly. Early on, bigger corporations like record labels, TV networks, publishers are rarely interested in the outsider's content because they often underestimate the market. If those companies are interested, they make lowball offers or want to alter the material in ways that feel inauthentic. But those offers get turned down. The Outcast Edge is about honoring yourself and your fans through authenticity. Third, play the long game, persevere, and push through. The Outcast Edge is a long game. In the early days, Outcasts will see their peers rise faster. Those artists will get big interviews on The Breakfast Club while the Outcasts are still selling mixtapes at gas stations. Times get tough both mentally and financially, but they learn from any constructive feedback and keep pushing. The Outcast Edge is the intersection of the three of those. Again, create content for like-minded outsiders, build an audience on independent platforms, and play the long game. Who else has the Outcast Edge? Three big names come to mind. First, Tyler, the creator. He built loyalty with other outsiders through Odd Future's Tumblr page. When the Odd Future frontman started rapping in the late 2000s, even the indie hip-hop blogs ignored him. But the gatekeepers couldn't stop the group's Tumblr account, which gave fans a glimpse into the vast creativity that was on its way. Tyler and Odd Future started on Tumblr in 2009. It was their channel to release new music, post random photos, and behind-the-scenes content. Their Tumblr feed was one of the first artist feeds with cryptic-type messages that were unknown to outsiders. It forced fans to be all-in to understand the vibes which built even more loyalty. These tactics are common in the Instagram era, but Tyler was doing it as a teenager before Instagram even existed. When Tyler dropped the Yonkers music video in 2011, more people caught on. Other rappers from major groups tried to sign him, but Tyler turned them down. He stayed in his lane, grew as an artist, refined his craft, and served his base. And he put that creator name to good work. He launched the Camp Flognaw Carnival in 2012, years before artist-curated festivals went mainstream. In 2012, he also hosted his own fashion shows featuring skateboards and basketball shorts. 100% on brand. Tyler was in his bag well before he broke out. For Tyler, 2019 was a watershed year. His self-produced Igor album outsold DJ Khaled's Father of Assad, an album with full of features from hip-hop's biggest stars made by an executive producer who implied that Tyler's music was, quote, mysterious, end quote. A few months later, Tyler sold out Madison Square Garden, which he's reminded fans of on several occasions. By the end of 2019, his outcast edge was so strong that his fans booed Drake the most mainstream rapper alive at the 2019 Camp Flognaw Carnival. Tyler has a lot in common with Outkast's Andre 3000. 
both started in hip-hop as lanky teenagers who never fit cultural norms, but they outlasted many who started when they did. In a 2021 Hot 97 interview, Tyler spoke on how other artists who, quote, were the hottest shit in 2012, where the fuck they at right now, end quote. Tyler said that shit with his chest, and that's how you talk when you have the outcast edge. The second person is Issa Rae. The awkward black girl found her people through YouTube and Facebook. Issa's life as a black student at Stanford University was the setting for Dorm Diaries, her first YouTube series. Dorm Diaries led to her award-winning Awkward Black Girl YouTube series. In 2012, she told the Washington Post that she launched the series because, quote, black people are always portrayed to be cool or overly dramatic, anything but awkward. Fans felt seen by her vulnerability and willingness to challenge TV's norms, and Issa leaned into that through grassroots community building tactics via Facebook, via YouTube comments, and her Facebook page, which now has over 250,000 fans. The big networks called to try to rework her show, start a franchise of different ethnicities, and even try to replace her with a lighter-skinned actress, but she held out, turned those down for the right opportunity. She ended up teaming up with HBO to launch Insecure in 2016. Its success has been a launch pad for a career that includes movie roles, her radio record label, and more. And in 2021, Ray signed an eight-figure overall deal for five years with Warner Media. The third is Tyler Perry. Medea reached an overlooked audience with a powerful email list. The 90s were a beacon for black media, but not the kind of media that Tyler Perry made. It took six long years of failed plays, homeless stints, and promotional efforts for audiences to finally buy into the character we all know today as Medea. Perry found success when he focused on his customer base, black women at churches. They were his mavens to spread the word to different communities. He also developed a strong email list, which had over 400,000 subscribers by 2004. At the end of his plays, Tyler would ask the audience to text three to five people they knew in his tour's next city to get them to buy tickets. His email list helped his first movie, The Diary of a Mad Black Woman in 2005, become the number one movie in its opening weekend when box office predictions didn't expect it to land in the top five. He leveraged a success for the entire Medea film franchise, TV shows from Tyler Perry Studios, and maintained ownership along the way. In 2019, Perry opened the largest film studio in U.S. in Atlanta, Georgia, and in 2021, Forbes named Perry a billionaire. The Outcast Edge evolves with phases of technology. Outcast, Tyler the Creator, Issa Rae, and Tyler Perry each represent different phases of a creator's relationship with technology and platforms. Each phase, they democratize access from the gatekeepers. This lowered the barriers to create content, build a following, and finally give a voice to a community. When Outcast started, gatekeepers had much more control in the music industry. Outcast had to maximize its media moments with memorable quotes, iconic music videos, and classic albums. But by the time Tyler Perry gained traction with Medea in the late 90s and early 2000s, email and texting took his game to a next level. Perry was an early adopter. He didn't have polished email marketing solutions like MailChimp, but that worked to his advantage. He got a head start on others who would have waited and wouldn't have tried until easier to use tools existed. If creators are serious, they will figure things out before the landscape matures. Similarly, if Issa and Tyler, the creator, only relied on email, they may not have reached the same levels of success. 
in the late 2000s, they leaned into timely web 2.0 era tools like Facebook, YouTube, and Tumblr to grow their millennial fan bases. In each case, they met fans where they were at. Today, creators with the Outcast Edge may be inspired by Issa, but they can't replicate her playbook. They need to stay up on the latest ways to use platforms to build a fan base. Web 3.0 tools like tokens, NFTs, and decentralized platforms will play a role in their strategy soon enough. The pitfalls. You can lose your Outcast Edge. When outcasts become stars, they need to maintain that edge. How do they keep day ones happy, stay true, but still maximize their potential? It gets real when outcasts get offered big deals that require some trade-offs. The emotional connection to the material makes it hard to give up any control and may hurt their reputation with fans. For instance, outcasts split in 2006 after the Idlewild film due to creative differences. When an outcast career hits that top level, it's hard to have everyone on the same page consistently. In 2005, Kanye West checked several of the outcast edge boxes. No one took the young producer seriously as a rapper, not even his Rockefeller team. But the college dropout spoke to an audience that didn't feel seen by the gangster rap that had dominated that era. Oh, how they loved Kanye. But by the time he was stadium yay, he was interrupting the MTV Video Music Awards and dating the most famous people in the world. The pink polos and backpacks were gone. He lost the outcast edge. He's still successful. He's a billionaire thanks to his commercial success with Yeezy, but it's a different type of success. So who's got next? The outcast edge is brewing with late night comedians Jesus and Miro. In the late 2000s, the former summer school classmates had done some occasional blogging, but didn't break out until they became popular on Twitter for their hilarious commentary on pop culture. They turned their black Twitter fame into several hit shows, most recently with Jesus and Mero on Showtime. There's also Donald Glover, the future EGOT. The actor-slash-rapper became a YouTube sensation from his NYU days. He's pivoted that into a multi-hyphenate award-winning career, and in 2021, he signed an overall deal with Amazon. The Outcast Edge is also strong with the late Nipsey Hussle. It took years for the mailbox money rapper to break out. His $100 mixtape tattic was ridiculed by many and celebrated years later. That's the narrative arc for the Outcast Edge. Some were surprised by the overwhelming response to his untimely death, but it spoke to what he built and the years it took to get there. Today, it's easy to look at young creators with hundreds of thousands of followers and assume that they all have the Outcast Edge. But that's not how this works. This isn't about randomly catching fire and stumbling into a thriving audience. This is about the person who you don't know today has a small and loyal following. But when they do pop, get ready. The groundwork will already be set. We'll look back and see that they had the outcast edge all along. So that's the essay. I hope you enjoyed it. As I mentioned, the response has been great. Thanks for everyone that's shared it. I hope you continue to share it. Now, I'm going to pivot into some suggestions from readers and listeners on who they think also has the outcast edge. The first suggestion, this is the first reply to the email after I sent it, was someone suggesting that Doja Cat was up next. And Doja Cat's an interesting one to break down in this way because I think that she has some aspects that apply and some aspects that I actually don't think apply. First, 
Doja Cat is a product of the SoundCloud era, and she's a product of this era that we've seen in music for the past decade or so. She was putting her music out there. I think she put her first single out in like 2012. She was using YouTube. She was on GarageBand, and she was using and maximizing viral videos to her advantage. But for her, things didn't really pop until she had that cow video, the moo one that went viral. And I think in a lot of ways, she also speaks to this generation because sometimes it's the dumbest shit that you put out that ends up giving you traction, but then it can shine a light on everything else you're doing. On Twitter and on social media, it's what they call a shit post. Someone literally will just say something for shock value and ridiculousness, but even though they put those out there, they still do have good content that at least gives them recognized. And it's part of what I think a lot of people realized is kind of common today. In some ways, it also reminds me of Kanye West putting out songs like that Poopity Scoop song. I forget the actual name of it. I think it's called like Lift Yourself, but stuff like that. Like it's the mix of that, but then him also being able to make the stuff like Donda. And I think for Doja Cat, it's her being able to do stuff like the Moose song, but then you also see her making songs like Say So. And you just hear how catchy and good that song is. And you're like, oh, you know, this is someone that is going to be very successful as someone in hip hop and someone that I think is also a pop star as well and merging the two of those worlds. And I think the other aspect of the Outcast Edge, which is intriguing, is that a lot of people do end up sparking some type of controversy. Doja Cat has come under fire for several of the things she said, some of the things she's done both in her past and some of her involvement and her whether or not she's backed down or stuck to her words in those situations. So some of that applies there. The difference, though, and why I don't think that she quite 100% fits is that there isn't that like-minded audience. I don't necessarily see the Doja Cat fan base the same way that I may have seen the Awkward Black Girl fan base or the Tyler the Creator fan base. Because now it seems like in a lot of ways, her fan base and her music and her style has very much been lumped into what we've seen from more of the mainstream hip-hop and mainstream pop music given the collaborations and some of the stuff that she's done with some of the other bigger artists that are out right now. So that's the one piece I don't necessarily see with her. The second person is Anderson Pock. He's another interesting one because I think he has the slow build and growth part. He had been making music for over a decade. He had gotten some early co-signs in his career, maybe around five years ago. I think he had an Apple commercial. And now he has a duo called Silk Sonic with Bruno Mars, who's one of the biggest pop stars in the world right now. Side note, when is that Silk Sonic album coming? Come on, y'all two need to get it together. You keep putting out these good singles. We want to hear it. The thing is, though, Thinking about Anderson Pac specifically, similarly, I don't know if I see that fan base. I definitely feel like there's a type of person, the type of people that I know that are Anderson Pac fans, and I do see some similarities there, but it's not necessarily this hive or this like, you know, culture mentality of speaking to someone that isn't being spoken to. That doesn't mean the music isn't great. I think the music's fantastic. I love Anderson Pac's music, but I just don't see it being the outcast edge because it doesn't hit all of those particular elements. The other person here is The Weeknd. That was the third person that's brought up. He's another interesting one because I think that he's a product of the blog era. Of course, I think him blowing up on OVO's blog and his connection to Drake has always been part of the narrative there. But his career, in my opinion, his career has had some of the more traditional ebbs and flows that 
of someone that relies on the traditional pop machine as opposed to someone that just has that steady and steady climb. Of course, he released the House of Balloons and the trilogy of his mixtapes independently, and there was that whole period where he was a mystery. I've written a whole article about this. I think he's one of the more fascinating people there. The thing is, though, I think he had several of those attempts to become mainstream, but it just didn't pop. And then he was able to rework things like that first debut album, Kissland. It didn't quite hit the same way that the past mixtapes did or the albums after that. But by the time he came out with that second album, The Beauty Behind the Madness, that's the one that had The Hills and Can't Feel My Face on it. We were able to see the pop star evolve into everything else that he's been able to do today. And with him having the biggest hit of 2020 with Blinding Lights, him performing at the Super Bowl, and just the controversy of him not getting any Grammy nominations, I think in many ways added to the allure of a lot of the things that he's done. Not quite outcast edge, but I mean, I think he's just been still someone that's very fascinating to study as well. The next two are going to be ones that are outside of hip-hop but are interesting to break down. Someone brought up Tesla. Tesla, the company, Elon Musk's car company. And I think, you know, believe it or not, there is a case to be made here because A... There is a vibe with Tesla. Elon Musk created this company, and given the hype and everything for electric vehicles, I think he's spoken, hit that market in a way that some of the other EVs were not doing. And there's clearly a type of person that's attracted to Tesla. Elon Musk has been able to brand himself as this celebrity and this enigmatic figure that people either love or hate, but those people that love do love, and a lot of them do end up driving Teslas as well. So there's a stigma, there's a thought, even the things like that session they had where he had that cyber truck thing and he had like thrown the thing and then broke the thing in the window like that's the kind of stuff that they love so it taps into that using technology in different ways and if we're being honest it did take a while for tesla to pop those first few years were a struggle a lot of people didn't buy into it they didn't think he was going to be successful and then elon had came out with that story in july of 2021 that apple he had tried to sell tesla to apple and he was trying to sell it for a sixth or not a sixth, but 6% of the value that it had in um, July 2021. Apple didn't necessarily confirm the details, but hearing Elon tell that story, it does confirm a lot of the things. So yeah, I'll admit there's a bit of that outcast edge with Tesla. The next one is Dave Portnoy from Barstool. And I think this also has some elements here, because if we're being honest, Barstool was started as this thing to speak to this culture of bros, especially, you know, starting off in the New England, but then reaching bros nationwide in the U.S., who felt that ESPN and Fox and all of the other more traditional broadcast and cable sports networks weren't delivering news in the way that they wanted to. And Barstool and Porto were able to lean into that. Some of those things they've gotten in trouble and, you know, in hot water for, but a lot of that they've leaned into as well. And so has their fan base. I mean, their whole Saturday for the boys thing is a testament to this. And I think that they've leaned into that. It did take a while for Barstool to pop as well. I think they were, I mean, the blog and Maybe not even as a blog. I think it starts like a newspaper, like 2003, and then it turned into a blog. And now, you know, it's this big podcast network and gambling hub. So they definitely have a lot of these things as well. 
Someone here had mentioned Frank Ocean, and I think that's an interesting one. I don't think he has the outcast edge, but I understand why people might think that way. I think it's quick to think that just because of the connection that he had to Odd Future and, of course, Tyler. But I think the rise in the career of Frank Ocean is very different from Tyler. Tyler said himself, like for years, people just dismissed him like, oh, he's weird. Like, you know, you don't want anything to do with them. And you could tell that is something that, you know, still does like sit with him to a lot of extent, thinking about how people have treated him. I think Frank is different because if we think about it, Frank has in many ways been very beloved since he came in hip hop. Nostalgia ultra mixtape dropped, beloved. People worshiped that. Channel Orange, the same thing. He got early cosigns from Jay-Z and Beyonce. He was on the Watch the Throne album. He had written music for some of the biggest names in hip-hop before he even broke out. So I know that he has a rabid fan base. I know that there is a bit of a like-minded audience. And I know just given some of the ways that he has challenged norms, and obviously he's doing things a bit more independently now with his Boys Don't, I forget the exact name of the label. I think it's Boys Don't Cry, but I forget exactly. But the way that he's been doing those things, I think is been pretty cool. And I do think that he has some of those aspects, but like I said, I just don't think that he had all of that to that same extent. Another person that I think, this is from my personal list now, is Z-Way. This is Z-Way Fumado. She is the, she calls herself the comedic pop star, but she had had that show on Showtime a few months ago. They had like a short season. I think it was like six or seven episodes, but it just ended. And I think we've seen her career rise where during the pandemic, she was doing those baited with Z-Way things where she would do those FaceTime calls with other celebrities and try to ask them questions to try to like bait them into saying like foolish things about their positions on race or show their white privilege or their privilege in some type of way. And she clearly found a shtick for that. I think that in a lot of ways, it reminds me of, or not doesn't necessarily remind me, but it's clear that you can, I can see the way that she's doing this stuff now. She probably did that stuff to her friends in high school and college. And now this is a more, you know, evolved and polished version where she's doing it to people like Rose McGowan and Andrew Yang. And we can see the results of that. Another one I'll add to the list here is Griselda. I think the rap crew out of Buffalo, they speak to a lot of this because they reach a like-minded audience. These are three rappers known for their, that boom bap style, that old school hip hop, people rapping real bars that I think a lot of older millennials and Gen X hip hop fans felt like was missing from hip hop. A lot of folks I know, you know, my age and a little bit older, they're not really feeling the Travis Scott, Lil Uzi Vert, and the Trippy Red and Juice World type vibes. They miss what they grew up with. And I think to some extent that's natural. And I think that Griselda hit that. They've been able to stay independent largely by doing it. And some of the things they've done with their business model in terms of selling vinyls and other high-end products speaks to that as well. And the last person I'll talk about here that someone I brought up is Lil Dicky. Well, actually, no, two more people. I'll talk about Lil Dicky first. I think he checks the outcast bucket for sure because I think he has leaned into and hit home pretty hard that people don't look at him the same way that other people in hip-hop are looked at. And yeah, I think part of that is, you know, just given his race as a white guy, but it's also the things he's talking about. And I think that he may position himself as, you know, someone that is a bit more of a playing or joking rapper. And I think as well, his TV show has leaned into that too. Dave, I think it's a, it's a great show. Uh, my wife and I actually just finished it, but I guess the thing that 
doesn't necessarily fit 100% for him is that who are those little Dicky fans, right? Are they people who are the fans of the TV show? Are they people who are fans of his last album? Are they people that are fans of that Freaky Friday song that he did with Chris Brown? I think that piece is a little bit unknown, but I mean, we've definitely seen him, you know, rise. And I think him having the success of this show is definitely the most success that we've seen him have, at least from a commercial perspective. The last one I'll close with is Nadeshot, who is the gamer, founder of 100 Thieves, and it started playing Call of Duty years ago. I'm not an expert in this particular area, but I do think that there are several things that do line up here, because if you just think about the rise of gaming, someone like him... People probably didn't think that he would have had a career in something like this, just given my context of the landscape. There's very few people that probably believed what they believed at the time because these people in gaming have such big communities that they're playing online. But I think mainstream culture ignored it as this like nerd thing that they weren't buying into. And now several years later, we see so much of the rest of the mainstream culture, either A, adopting gaming or B, taking principles from gaming and bringing it into their own worlds and their own environments that they're in. And the fact that he's been able to make it to something as thriving, as successful as 100 Thieves, given some of the investors it's had, given some of the impact that it's had, it's really valuable. So those are the examples that I have for the Outcast Edge and some of the people that had sent them in. This is going to be a continuous conversation. So if you have any other thoughts, shoot me an email. My email is info at trapital.co or hit me up on social media and I'll definitely try to cover these in a future episode. And that's the beauty of why I wanted to put the Outcast Edge theory out here to begin with. This was something that I've been working on for a while and it was great to have this conversation. So Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it and catch you next time. If you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and share it with a friend. Copy the link, text it to a friend, post it in your group chat, post it in your Slack groups, wherever you and your people talk, spread the word. That's how Trapital continues to grow and continues to reach the right people. And while you're at it, if you use Apple Podcasts, go ahead, rate the podcast, give it a high rating and leave a review. Tell people why you like the podcast. That helps more people discover the show. Thank you in advance. Talk to you next week. Thank you.